Hello and welcome to The Intersection. I'm Mark Riley. Thanks so much for being with us. We have a very special guest with us on this episode, an expert on voting methods. Aaron Hamlin will explain how states and cities have options, options you might not even have thought of, on how to conduct elections. And none too soon. But first, we're going to take a look at the Supreme Court, a Supreme Court that has gone rogue in how they may not have finished dragging the nation back to the 1950s, or in some cases, to the 1850s. Consider for a moment decisions in the past that the U.S. Supreme Court got horribly wrong. There's the Dred Scott decision, which denied the rights of citizenship to black people. And then there's Plessy versus Ferguson, not that long afterward, which affirmed the right of states to segregate black folks. Even before that, the high court ruled that states could segregate in certain accommodations. And then, and this is one that doesn't get talked about very much, there's the 1927 case that allowed for forced sterilization of people with intellectual disabilities. In fact, in that decision, the revered Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes commented that, quoting here, society can prevent those who are manifestly unfit from continuing their kind. Three generations of imbeciles are enough, end quote. It's against this backdrop that the most recent court decisions ought to be seen. We've discussed the hideous gutting of Roe versus Wade and the gift given to the gun lobby. Both of those we talked about last episode. We also mentioned West Virginia versus the EPA, that's the Environmental Protection Agency, which had not yet been announced. Well, now it has, and the court has snatched an important tool in fighting climate change away from the federal government. Not content with a conservative trifecta, the court has also agreed to hear a case that will give state legislatures greater power over the conduct of federal elections, more power, in fact, than the judiciary. That ruling likely will not come down before next year, but it could have an outsized impact on the 2024 elections. And when it comes to voting rights, who ends up getting the short end of the stick? I'll give you three guesses. And all three of them are people of color. Although the North Carolina case in question is about redistricting, the Republican legislators that redrew the lines admit that it's about a lot more than that. As it happens, people are taking a close look at voting in the wake of Donald Trump's election denial in 2020. There are already a number of systems in place across the country and almost an equal number that advocates believe could do a better job at truly expressing the will of the people. Aaron Hamlin is executive director and co-founder of the Center for Election Science. We recently spoke about the different voting systems being used across the country and which one he thinks is best. You're listening to The Intersection of Politics and Culture with Mark Riley.
Welcome back to The Intersection. My guest is Mr. Aaron Hamlin. He is Executive Director of the Center for Election Science, which studies and advances better voting methods. He has two graduate de uh, degrees, that is, in the social sciences and a law degree. He's written articles for, among others, Deadspin, USA Today Magazine, and the Independent Voter Network. Aaron Hamlin, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Let me start out by asking you, there are a number of different methods of voting. And I think some people believe that there are certain methods obviously are better than others. I know you believe that. But do voting methods actually have the potential to drastically change the outcomes of elections? I would say uh, yes. And I'll, I'll maybe take a little bit of a step back because like when I know like when you say like you go out on the street and you ask someone like, hey, like what's a voting method? A lot of folks like maybe won't know what that is or they have like some notion of what that is. And so when when we're talking about a, a voting method, what we're talking about is uh, the type of information you put on a ballot and how that's calculated to produce a result. So you can put all kinds of different information on the ballot. We're used to just like picking one candidate, but you can rank candidates, you can select as many as you want, you can score them, and you can do all kinds of different things with that information to see who the winner is. Um, so like when you and I are talking about a voting method, like for, for clarity for the listeners, like this is what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And so what you're asking is, um, given there are different ways of doing that, uh, does that actually affect the political environment, like the actual real world in terms of like uh, you pick one method versus another, does that make a, a meaningful difference? Uh, and uh, of course, I would say I would say yes to that. Um, and I think it does so in a number of different ways. Um, so, uh, for example, when we're thinking about these different voting methods, whether it be our choose one voting method, also called first past the post or priority voting mm -hmm. or the um, instant runoff voting, also known as ranked choice voting, uh, which has you rank candidates and then it simulates uh, sequential runoffs, or whether you're talking about the voting method that we advocate at the Center Production Science, which is approval voting, that simply means you can select, not rank, but select as many candidates as you want and the candidate with the most votes wins. Um, so when you're talking about all these different uh, voting methods and thinking like, okay, well, is there something meaningful going on when we decide of one versus another? Mm -hmm. uh, what are we really looking at? And so when I'm looking at a voting method and I'm thinking like, okay, well, what makes a voting method good in the first place that might lead to meaningful differences? I'm thinking about things like winner selection. Um, so like, does it actually elect someone uh, who is representative of the electorate that they're supposed to be representing? Um, and do the candidates themselves get an accurate reflection of support? Um, that way, when they bring new ideas to the table, are they being uh, marginalized or are they actually getting uh, credit for the support that they have? Um, and then the other component, the final one is uh, simplicity and practicality. So like, is this method hard to understand? Can you actually uh, use it without a lot of like technical uh, issues? And so when we're thinking about a voting method, these are kind of the criteria that we're using. Um, and uh, to the degree that a voting method uh, selects a better winner and to the degree that it uh, encourages people to be able to run because their support is accurately measured and you have a, 
an actual debate about new ideas, then yes, the, a voting method does uh, meaningfully um, change the uh, the real world um, uh, scenario that, that you're looking at based on whether you pick one method or the other. It's interesting. Um, is there an ideological plus and minus uh, in terms of what voting methods uh, actually give an edge to a particular type of candidate? It's it's interesting. Like um, some some voting methods can uh, allow more polarizing candidate to win, uh, and others uh, favor more uh, candidates towards the center. I keep in mind, like when I say like center or a more polarizing candidate, I mean that respective to the particular electorate that you're talking about. So mm -hmm. when we're talking about a center candidate, like a center candidate in Francisco versus rural Texas, those are very different center candidates. Uh, and, and so that's something to keep in mind. And when you're looking at um, uh, some of these methods, it also depends on who's in the race. So like if it's a crowded election and uh, a bunch of the candidates fall within one part of the spectrum, um, that can also uh, interact with the voting method to decide like who the winner is going to be. Um, one of the things that you see with our choose one voting method that can also happen with ranked choice voting um, when you use that to simulate a runoff process is you can have this vote splitting effect in the middle that can move towards uh, a candidate who is a little bit more towards the edge. Um, but this also depends on who's running and where they are on the political spectrum and how much support they have. So there's like a whole bunch of interaction effects that go on at the same time. Um, but um, uh, something like uh, our priority voting system or choose one system can't have that some of that effect. Uh, ranked choice voting can mitigate that uh, somewhat. Um, and then when you look at other methods, uh, there are others that tend towards a, a much more center candidate, um, ideally like the best candidate for that particular electorate and approval voting would fall uh, in, in that line. Um, I was just gonna ask you about how uh, this works going up the food chain in politics. For example, uh, you have uh, the Congress, you know, House and Senate, and both of those bodies, particularly Democrats, have, uh, you know, campaign committees, the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. And some people argue that those committees actually end up becoming incumbent protection programs because they have a tendency sometimes to fund uh, incumbent politicians, or in one case, uh, I think it, it was New York, uh, they threatened not to use consultants who were uh, working with insurgent candidates, which I find deeply unfair, but that's just me. Um, do you think that a different voting method, one that might not favor incumbents, has any chance at all of becoming uh, a, a, a voting uh, a method of choice when incumbents are going to fight it tooth and nail? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. And there, there is this inherent conflict because you, you have this classic uh, fox guarding the hen house uh, scenario. And so the tactic that we use when we're working 
with a community to get approval voting implemented, whether it be at the local or as we're moving uh, uh, towards in the future at the, at the state level, uh, we, we simply don't ask the people who are already elected for permission. Uh, and the, the way that we do that is we work with local groups to run ballot initiatives, which is just meaning that you get a bunch of signatures, you get it on the ballot, and then the voters themselves decide whether to use this new voting method. And it's not up to the people who are elected. Uh, now down the road, we uh, and when we run out of places that use ballot initiatives, then we'll have to do more of that lobbying effort with people who are already elected. Um, but in terms of like where the low hanging fruit is now, we're using this ballot initiative process where we are able to avoid uh, that conflict of interest with people who are already elected. It's kind of like uh, what they call INR in California, right? Initiative and referendum. You get a certain number of signatures, it gets on the ballot, and then the public ends up voting for it. Uh, but, you, you know, it's funny the way that evolved over time, because it seems as though Midwest and Western states uh, are much more, uh, or put it this way, much less hostile to INR than Eastern states are. And they're, I've talked to people who thought that's because the way the country uh, kind of evolved over time and people out in the Midwest and the West Coast didn't wanna uh, end up creating some of the political machines that existed on the East Coast, especially in the 19th century. But I'm wondering, uh, can you realistically uh, push this kind of thing forward? You're, you're actually seemingly going from a grassroots level in terms of getting it on the ballot, uh, having the ability, giving people the ability to decide whether or not that's what they want. If you've been able to, have you been able to do that successfully yet? Oh yeah, yeah. So what, what's really exciting about what we've done is we only got initial funding um, essentially to start our 2018 year. And before that, when you don't have any money, you just kind of work together and plan and think and do things that don't cost anything and during that process was when we went through that those criteria that we mentioned before which is uh um uh winner selection accuracy of candidacy of candidate support and uh um, practicality for for picking approval voting mm -hmm. um and so uh the but the challenge with that with approval voting was it didn't have a lot of experience with government elections uh, and so we went from taking a voting method that wasn't used anywhere and then having to show proof of concept, replicate and uh, scale uh, for, for this because like it just wasn't used before. And so what we did was we uh, worked with uh, our, the first city that we worked with was Fargo, North Dakota, the city of 120,000 people. Yeah, I saw uh, that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Then we were able to replicate that in St. Louis, Missouri, 300,000 people now. And now it's on the ballot in Seattle, Washington, three quarters of a million people. And so we're, when, you, when you have something that when you start, it doesn't exist anywhere and you have to make it exist, like you have to go through this process of proof of concept and replication and scaling. And then from here, like we're just going to go into states at this point. Mm -hmm. Now, let's take this to its logical conclusion. Let's say you're able to get this in cities and towns all over the country. And suddenly there's a push to perhaps have approval voting in the presidential election. Would that eliminate the need for the electoral college in your judgment? 
so that, that's actually a pretty complicated question. I can totally answer the question, but it is a, a bit complicated uh, because our system of electing presidents complicated. Uh, so when when we look at states and run initiatives in states, uh, a, one convenient thing about the way that the U.S. is set up is that states have a lot of authority in terms of determining how they deal with federal elections, even though the Constitution says that if the Congress wanted to step in and uh, kind of lay the law down and uh, dictate a bit more about how congressional elections were run, they could, but uh, they haven't done that a whole lot. And so states have a lot of leeway. And so when uh, a state is, is won via a ballot initiative and say approval voting is used in a particular state, now that state uses approval voting to elect U.S. Senate seats. So not just their state stuff uh, and, and local stuff, but U.S. Senate seats, U.S. House seats, and the way that their electoral votes are assigned. And so um, you can use approval voting that way. Now, the, the other part of your question was, what about the Electoral College? Now, when, when we're doing this at the, at the state level, um, it says nothing about the Electoral College itself other than like the state itself can use approval voting. Um, to decide how their, their votes are allocated, but it doesn't say anything about like nullifying the electoral college. Um, if if you want to kind of think along that path, there's a, another organization um, that works on something called the National Popular Vote Plan, and what that does is it uses an interstate compact. This is not something that that, that we're in, but just kind of describing it. So it uses this interstate compact, which is just a contract between states. And what that contract says is that if enough uh, states uh, sign on to this so that the states themselves, that their electoral votes total to 270, um, they have the, uh, their state's electoral votes just go to whatever the national popular vote winner is. Now it still uses the electoral college technically, but it nullifies its, its, its effect by just saying that like whoever uh, is in this compact basically deciding um, who the um, uh, president is going to be by uh, directing where the national uh, popular, uh, directing where the, the um, electoral votes are going. The um, one, one part where this gets a little uh, tricky is uh, the only, in this kind of setup, the only real voting method that's outside of uh, first past the post uh, that is compatible with this in terms of alternative voting methods is approval voting. Um, and the reason for that is because of two parts. One is um, the type of data that's being used. And the second is something called precinct summability. Uh, so for example, like some of your listeners may be familiar with ranked choice voting, uh, where you rank candidates and then it simulates this sequential runoff process. Now with that kind of voting method, um, to be able to add up uh, all the ballots to get a result, you need to have everything centrally located uh, and you need every last ballot uh, before you can go ahead and start to, to tabulate. You can't do it before then. Um, and so um, as, a, as a result, like you, um, you cannot do this process without um, uh, um, being able to centrally tabulate them. And you, and you can't do this compact unless you have a voting method that allows you to be able to tabulate uh, totals uh, separately. So like to be able to add, say like North uh, Dakota's um, uh, votes and then South Dakota's votes and Maine's votes, you, um, you, you have to be able to add their totals together. Uh, but with ranked choice voting, you need all the states together. And 
uh, particularly with holdout states, like you just can't do that because you would need every single state to use ranked choice voting. And on top of that, um, you wouldn't be able to start your counting process until every last uh, ballot was accounted for. Uh, so that's a, a big reason, and that's yeah. fatal. Uh, the 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 second and and, and final reason that um, approval voting is the only other voting method that would work with this interstate compact um, is that the type of data that you're using. So if you're um, uh, when you look at approval voting ballot, you're just adding up approvals um, or votes for these individual candidates, and as is the same thing with our choose one voting method, um, and so. These types of data are so similar, you can just like mesh them together and you can still get vote totals because even with this interstate compact, when you're looking at the national popular vote, you, you're, you still have some states that are going to use our choose one voting method and other states are going to be using, say, approval voting. Um, and if you're looking at, if you're trying to figure out what the national popular vote is, you have to add all of this stuff together and approval voting works that way. You can do that. But you can't add a ranking information to this choose one voting method. Um, the way oh, that they're working, yeah. So, so the way that they're working around that is just by looking at first choice votes. Um, that's the way that like they're trying to account for that for states that are using ranked choice voting that also want to do this national popular vote plan. Um, and so it essentially nullifies the voting method because if you're only using that little bit of piece of information, it's not adding any of the value that you get from that other voting method. So in practice, approval voting is the only other alternative voter method uh, that will work with that national popular vote plan. But when we're working at implementing approval voting in these different states, it's not in and of itself saying that it's nullifying the electoral college. That's really a separate issue. Final quick question. Um, we've seen in elections, not, not even having to go back that far. In 2000, Al Gore won the popular vote, lost the electoral vote. 2016, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote, uh, and lost the presidency to Donald Trump. And in 2020, Joe Biden won the popular vote and the electoral vote, yet Donald Trump continued to maintain, and now we're starting to get more information about the length to which he tried to go to stay in office, but he tried to approach individual electors in individual states to get them to either change their vote or to substitute electors in those states. Would approval voting do anything to make that kind of attempted uh, manipulation tamper-proof? Um, well, I, th I think one of the things that approval voting has going for it is that, um, like some of the things like are kind of that you mentioned are kind of independent of the of the voting method, and like approval voting really doesn't have have a say in. But I think one of the things that's really important here is, I mean, we live in a country where a number of of people don't trust our systems. Um, and as a result, when you're looking at different reform options, it becomes really critical that you look at reform options that are easy to understand because, I mean, nobody wants to feel like they're being hoodwinked uh, in any of this. Um, and so that's one additional bonus with approval voting is that it's very simple to understand. You simply select all the candidates that you want, which you can do on just a normal ballot that just says you can bubble in more than one candidate, um, and then the candidate with the most votes wins. You get a clear reflection of support for the candidates. You have a clear winner. Uh, whereas with like ranked choice voting, you have a different type of, of ballot. Um, it often truncates the number of candidates that are on the ballot because 
it gets unwieldy when you have a number, uh, a lot of candidates. Um, and then the process itself, like I, I kind of have just uh, briefly described right choice voting as like this method that simulates sequential runoffs. But I mean, the actual algorithm for it is much more complicated. You're looking at a number of first choice votes. If that number of first choice votes is greater than 50%, you have a winner. If not, you look to the candidate with the fewest first choice votes, go to their next choice preference, uh, transfer those votes over to them, treat that as the first choice ranking. Now look at the remaining uh, ballots, see if uh, anyone has greater than 50% of first choice votes. If yes, you have a winner. If not, you keep going through that process with the remaining ballots. Uh, and so like that, that is a lot more complicated than pick all the candidates that you want, most votes wins. Um, and so uh, when, when we are in this environment of distrust, uh, it becomes really important to be able to look at uh, the, these reforms and for them to be understandable by like everyday people. Um, and so that's, I think, just another perk for, uh, for this type of reform. Aaron Hamlin, I want to thank you so much for joining us on The Intersection. It's been very, very enlightening to me. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. The co-founder of the Center for Election Science. Thanks so much for listening to The Intersection. The executive producer is Kim Jack Riley. And music is by Tevin Thomas. Until next time, please be well.